Talk Soups and CEOs, Season 2, Episode 9. I realized last week I skipped Episode 7. Sorry. <laughs> so we're on Episode 9, right and a half. Great conversation with a couple of our great IEI member superintendents and Dr. Polly Gavoni, who is an MMA fight coach, a behaviorist, and overall evangelist for the power of relationships. Let's start the show. time checking us out thanks for being here we appreciate all of you for listening we appreciate when you subscribe you want to give us some stars leave us a review we appreciate that as well Um, this is a a pretty cool and unique conversation this week i sat down with dr Polly gavoni he told me i could call him Polly. i made sure to ask because um he's a guy who can um kick my butt in the ring so (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> a guy like that who <laughs> can punch and train fighter, you uh, you ask first before you before you ask me call by his nickname. Uh, Polly Gavoni sat down with us. He you know he he speaks around the country. Um, he's he's a behaviorist. He's somebody who works with organizations um, on on coaching around engagement, and he specifically has has written and spoken a lot to educators and educational leaders about. Things like the power of hallway duty and how that should be an opportunity to connect with kids. And just, um, it was a great conversation because I think he shares a lot of things that are really important to us at IEI about, um, about people. Education's a people business and uh, the power of people to help each other. You know, it was also, uh, joining us in the conversation, um, we had... Dr. Jason Andrews, superintendent of Windsor CSD Central School District in Central New York, and Dan Cox, superintendent of Rochester 3A in Illinois, both of whom have been heavily engaged in uh, people-driven, relationship-driven efforts in their districts this year, sort of on overdrive, um, given the pandemic. We talked a little bit about, you'll hear the discussion, it is a long one, so I'm not going to give you too much preamble today. But one of the things that I have reflected on since recording that a couple of days ago is there's there's so much stuff that we thought we had to do in school that with the pandemic, we just decided to stop doing. Or or the, the requirement from, from above, from the State Department or whomever, it just went away. And... You know, it's not IEI's place or my place to sit here and and pontificate on matters of policy, like should we have teacher evaluations and what should they look like and what metrics should they have. But it's interesting that you know we're we're facing a real a, a potential staffing crisis in public schools. Superintendents, administrators are leaving at an alarming rate. Teachers are. Uh, either taking leaves or leaving the profession at an alarming rate. We may be distancing and wearing masks into next school year. 
and very few, no elementary school teachers go into the business um, expecting that kids are going to be in silos at desks behind plexiglass all day and kids are wearing, you know, kids sit and they work together and collaborate and share scissors and all that stuff that you do in school. And it's, it's tough. It's morale is quite low this year in, in most schools. And there's really not much we can do about it. It's sort of, we have to grin our teeth and bear it because the kids need us. And that was sort of the discussion got into um, some of the some of the behaviors that we're seeing change, and some of the some of the work that these two superintendents have done to uh, let let teachers and administrators know that they've got their backs, and that um, the district empathizes with the challenges of this year and um, values them. And you know, one one thing that they've eased up on is some of the teacher eval requirements, and I thought that was a really interesting discussion, and I hope that the folks um, in districts where that's happening, I hope that's that's making an impact on overall morale. It's not that people don't want to be accountable or evaluated, but, you know, at a time when people have to completely rethink their entire curriculum, adding a bunch of paperwork on top, um, you know, this maybe isn't isn't the right year, but it's interesting how quickly when we have an emergency situation like the pandemic, how quickly some of these requirements go away. Suddenly we don't need to do all the high stakes assessment that we used to do. So I hope we're going to think about all that as we come out of this. And, you know, it's sort of like if you have a, a sweater in your closet and you haven't worn it in a couple of years and Maybe like a moth got into it a little bit and there's a little hole <laughs> somewhere. Uh, it just doesn't seem as nice anymore. You know, is it really a sweater you want to keep or or is it one you want to get rid of or donate? And, you know, if, if some of the things that we've found easy to just drop in this pandemic, if we, if we didn't need them during this, do we need them next year? I think that's, that's a process that districts and states and elected officials are going to have to go through. But uh, it was, it's a great discussion. I'm going to get out of the way and let you listen to Jason Andrews, Dan Cox, and Polly Gavoni talk about this work of building relationships despite the, um, the necessary but challenging barriers, physical and otherwise, that have been put up between us and our colleagues, uh, us and our students during the pandemic. And I'll be back on the other side. Enjoy it. All right. Welcome back to Talk Soup CEOs. This is episode nine of season two as we barrel through this bizarre school year uh, where folks are working way out of functional areas that they thought they would be working in. And superintendents are becoming some of the most entrepreneurial thinkers and workers are in our nation right now, and it's it's been great to see. We're excited about this episode today. We've got with us Dr. Paul Gavoni, who is the Vice President of Organizational Leadership for Brett DeNovi and Associates, where he focuses on applying organizational management to school leaders and teachers, but he told us we're going to call him Pauly. So, Pauly, welcome. Glad to have you here. Uh, thank you very much. And by the way, just for clarification, it's organizational behavior management. In my field, that's like a nuance because there's organizational behavior, organizational development. This is actually differentiated because it's like a real science for, you know, changing group behavior and performance. 
Well, great, good. Welcome, glad to have you here. And of course, we got two of our great IEI members and friends here. We've got Dan Cox, who is the superintendent of Rochester 3A near Springfield, Illinois. Good morning, Dan, how are you? Good morning, doing well, thanks for having me. Glad you're here. And Dr. Jason Andrews, superintendent of Windsor Central School District in Central New York. How are you, Jason? Doing great, thanks, Doug. All right, really glad you all are here. Um, so, uh, Paul, you've got a pretty interesting background coming out of, of MMA and, and, and as a fight coach. Tell us how you make this journey to, uh, to coaching educational leaders from that world. Yeah, well, I mean, it's pretty, I'll make it a short one uh, since we only have 30 minutes. But, uh, you know, in my, my, one of the things I value is helping people. And I actually started my journey in education and moved on to social work and then working in uh, different schools as a uh, clinical uh, coordinator and turning into behavior analyst, but um, I, I started fighting in 1993 after getting uh, dumped by my uh, girlfriend at that time, and I just didn't know how to handle it, you know, and there was a local club where people fought, and my my friend, who was six foot seven, 265 pounds, got in there, and he fought, and uh, he took a beating. Uh, I, I grew up in like a real rough neighborhood, and uh, somebody said, man, you know, I was lifting weights at the time. They said, why don't you go up there and fight? I didn't know how to fight, but I thought, you know, I didn't really care because I was in such a bad state of mind. So I fought and I was a very, always a very sensitive guy, a very caring guy. And I really did really enjoy at my heart, uh, you know, helping people. In fact, my own hashtag is heart and science. And so I got up there and fight, fought and uh, I won and it was hard. I took a, a beating and beat the guy. We came out all bloody and all that. And I didn't grow up watching boxing. I mean, I was an athlete played soccer and baseball, uh, you know, other things. I surfed, uh, but I uh, uh, it just the, the feeling that I got, the thrill. Well, I started boxing shortly after that, and I do a keynote on this because the first time I walked into a boxing ring, I climbed through the ropes, and I remember they saying, hey, we want you to get in there and spar with a professional fighter. And that's just not a good idea, man. <laughs> it's not a good idea. I mean, it, at that time, there was like Mad Max Beyond, Thunderdome was out, and they had that chant, two men enter and one man leave. <laughs> and it was literally going through my head as I climbed through. I mean, it, was, it smelled like fiberglass because it was a makeshift boxing gym. And the guy beat the crap out of me, man. He broke my nose where I literally wow. just got it fixed recently. Yeah. And, you know, years later, I began to reflect on that time and think about how many potential world champions walk through the door of a gym similar to I did and took a beating only to never come back. And I, and I feel that in the data will support this, that educators are kind of taking the same beating, uh, not just teachers, but school leaders. We, you know, in high poverty schools, you know, up to more than half the teachers are leaving the field in those schools and ed, in school leaders as well. It's like a revolving door because I feel like they're being dropped into the ring. Like I was to take a beating and, and then be, they're being evaluated or being told to do A, B, and C. And one of the things I know from fighting is that if you teach your fighter how to have very good defense, then they're going to be able to be relaxed because they feel safe, right? There's this psychological safety. And for them, it's literal safety. And when you feel safe, it allows you to access your entire repertoire, right? You can access your offense and you can perform very well. Well, if you're a teacher being evaluated and you have been trained in something like say, just basic classroom management, which most universities do not train teachers in classroom management, yet most of the teachers leaving the field, that's one of the things that they're claiming that issues with behavior are one of the reasons and issues with administrators. And probably I bet there's a link to those two as well, you know? So they're taking a beating and they don't know what to do and they end up leaving because they just don't have the skill set. And our higher ed, and I've taught in higher ed, so I don't, you know, in, in education, uh, the, the, the professors, which are the teachers, 
are not measured like in, in public education based on the performance of their students. They can get good grades and that's not a measure of, you know, knowledge and skills. Like I can't teach my fighter how to fight by giving them theory and modeling form and getting them to rep it a few times and give them feedback and expect that they're going to be able to form in that setting. I've got to give lots of rehearsal and, and key critical behaviors of fighting. And then I have to create a safe area for where they get lots of repetition doing it and I can shape their behavior as a good coach. And then they're going to be successful. So I know that we have internships and which some of them are very good. I think oftentimes they're not good. They're not good enough because we wouldn't have so many teachers leaving the field if they were. And it's worse for leaders. They're, you know, leadership is just a, a ton of theory and they're learning on the job. And unfortunately, some of the research I've read is that one one leader can impact student achievement by up to 25%. And I think that if we're going to get the most bang from our buck, we really need to support leadership. They need to understand how performance works, how to bring out the best in your teachers so you can bring out the best in the students. And what happens, and this is through, and by the way, I use the science of behavior, human behavior in my mixed martial arts and boxing, right? It's all about in building performance and i've been able to you know and this this is not a pat on my back it's a pat on the back of the science of human behavior which is widely misunderstood um, i've been able to create world champions heavyweight champion in the world and multiple champions at different levels i've also been able to go into schools that are struggling failing schools like the worst schools in the district and turn them around now the problem with that is that without me or a crew of people there it didn't maintain one of the things that we have to do is focus on what's called institutionalization that is embedding teaching people to fish right and that takes time because you have to create habits but that that only sustains when there's good leadership there where people who understand that putting the whip on people might get you to win the battle but you lose the war and in these high poverty schools where i'd go in i'd see kids that were it was like detention center and it was good people engaging in bad behavior because the immediate outcomes it was producing and because they didn't have a toolbox they weren't equipped with a toolbox to accelerate and shape performance and achieve the outcomes they were doing what they needed to do just to survive like i was doing in the ring just doing defense and then when they get tired of it there's turnover and turnovers are costs that and this is a couple of years ago what i've read is it costs eight thousand to twenty two thousand dollars per teacher for turnover that's a lot of money it's costing billions of dollars in this revolving door and you can't even put a measure on what it's costing our economy in terms of you know poverty in terms of mental health i think you know we, we we throw a lot of money in education but we need to make sure that we support it with science of what we're doing we need to change the way we're doing higher education we can't be dumping people into districts and like the poor superintendents are this is the hand they get dealt what are you gonna do with this hand of cards where you have to produce student achievement but the teachers and many of who are out of field are not equipped teaching is very complex instruction is very complex just because you have content knowledge doesn't mean that you're going to be a good teacher and that's what happens at professor at the higher education level and i'm not blaming the professors because it's not their fault either it's a they're a product of the system and this stuff just trickles down and it ends up falling on the back of superintendents the school leaders and the teachers and students end up not getting what they need does that make yeah. sense guys yeah, yeah. Jason, Dan, I see you guys nodding uh, in your Zoom windows. You know, this this is a year when um, we're we're all kind of worried about attrition amongst uh, educational leaders, um, colleagues of of yours, superintendents who are maybe toward the end of contracts or toward the end of careers or deciding to hang it up. Really talented, wonderful people, and I you know I can't say 
it's 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 tough right now and everybody's got to make best decisions for them and their families but we're also seeing a lot of teachers reconsider whether this is the right career for them um what are you guys seeing in your districts what are you thinking about in terms of trying to maintain you know keep, keep the really good folks working with your kids yeah so i i mean i think uh you know everything that that Polly mentioned. I think is is uh, right on on the money. I think in a in any year uh, that can be a challenge. And and you know to me some of that is the question, uh, a, a pretty big question of are we truly going to be a profession or not? And I think some of the traditions that we have in education. I can tell you when I started teaching social studies in our high school. Uh, I felt more like I was pledging a fraternity than I was joining a profession and sort of the, uh, you know, was handed the, the book, by the way, I didn't even have a degree in history and I'm teaching U.S. history, uh, right. you know, patted on the back and said, the Go get them. yeah, hazing rituals and all right? right. Well, right. And so colleagues were saying, well, nobody ever helped me. Uh, you know, you've got to you've got to figure it out yourself. And I think, you know, that's just not a profession. And, and so I think part of this is. Uh, you know, and I, I do a lot of work uh, with professional learning communities. I'm fortunate to be an associate for Solution Tree and work with, with schools all over the country on this idea of, you know, collaboration and are you truly co-laboring? And if you can build that culture, uh, we've worked really hard at that for the past 15 years, then I think something like the pandemic can be doable. I think that, you know, and the research is clear in terms of retention. If you truly have that collaborative culture within your district, you do retain more. And I think the other part with that, uh, that I think can be tricky, you know, and, and if uh, you think about the, the concept of, you know, the, the clarity of why, starting with your why, you know, I think uh, play schools uh, that have not been really clear about building this shared mission, shared vision, shared values, and shared goals, which can seem like uh, this uh, in, in the sky activity and, you know, not about a mission statement, but are we on the same mission? Do we have the same why? Uh, then I think you can keep people there because bottom line is, you know, every organization, they focus on the what are we going to do and how are we going to do it? all of that changed with COVID. So if you were never clear on the why, and why are we here? So, you know, one of the things that didn't change for us is, is our mission, you know, to ensure that each learner's future ready. If you can be clear on that and have it truly be a shared mission, then all of the hows and, you know, COVID protocols and distance learning, those are challenges but you're not going to leave the district or lead, leave the field. You know, there's this uh, famous quote from, from Nietzsche that said, uh, he who has a why to live for can bear almost any how. So our hows can change, but I would argue that we don't spend enough time in schools and as school leaders being clear on that why. Uh, I want to say that that also what you're saying is supported deeply by the science of human behavior. And that is we're going to call that why the big reinforcer in the sky. And that's what pulls people to it. And that's what great leaders have done in the past. Like they've created a why or want, we call it establishing operations. So people are willing to go through the tough day-to-day -to -day stuff, the mundane behaviors, because they understand that these things are all building towards this why. And then you can set goals along the way that because now achieving those goals has a meaningful outcome to them. And to your point, you know, too often we do things to people and do things and don't do things with them. And we do things with educators that you, there's the old saying, if you author it, you own it. 
they're going to be more engaged or more willing to engage in the behaviors required to achieve those goals and those things that are moving towards that why. And I think that falls on the back of good leaders. And this is why we have to focus more on good leadership. So to helping people understand that good leadership isn't about, you know, what you do to people. It's about discretionary effort, getting people to go above and beyond despite what's going on. And it does, you know, uh, Jason, to your point, it really does start with the why. So great, great point. Well, and I think just just to that part of it, then it also becomes your compass by which you make the decisions. So we're clear on the why. So now when you get into, uh, well, we're going to try to maximize in-person learning. We're going to, of course, have our uh, our COVID protocols in place, but how do we maximize that? We're clear on the why. We're going to ensure each learner is future ready. So if that's the case, uh, then this is how we're going to do that. It's going to help with your budget decisions. It's going to help with program decisions. It really makes a whole lot of that pretty clear uh, versus, you know, trying to, to figure out what, where's the wind blowing today. Uh, it really guides you, I think. Yeah. That and values, the values that are tied into that why right now, how are we going to achieve that why? And, uh, you know, I look at culture, culture is just shared behavior. If we look at our values, those are the behaviors that we engage in that produce some sort of immediate reinforcement. I value being kind and the act of being kind is valuable to me. And this is what I want to share. And if I'm kind to people and, you know, I'd lay it on with some good behavior science and we're focusing on those goals that are aligned with that. Why? Then you start getting performance, you know, so people need to understand that to your point. And, uh, you know, they need to engage in the behaviors to get there. And that's where leaders need to not just create that. Why? But now establish a system that's going to efficiently move them in that direction, because even if there's a want, if there's no efficient system for them to create those habits, that culture, right, that shared behavior, then you have a bunch of good people wanting to achieve that why, but they're all moving in different directions. So leaders have to understand, you know, the essences of performance management. For sure, and to and to your point, and and I won't uh, I won't continue to to dominate. Well, I'll hear from Dan, but the. You know, we talk a lot about values, but values, you can't see someone's values. You can't see their beliefs. You can see their behaviors. Yes. And so if you're going to say that this is what we believe, we, we believe deeply in equity and you have, as in, in my district, a big digital divide. So we, if we believe in equity, then we have to figure out how to bridge that digital divide if we're going to ensure that each learner is future ready. So you can't see people's values. You can only see their behaviors. And so I think that part of you've got to hold the mirror up and say, are we behaving in a manner that's consistent with who we say we are? A hundred percent, man. And your behaviors at heart, Jason. <laughs> uh, Dan, talk to us a little bit about, uh, we started this just talking about, um, you know, teacher uh, re retainment and, you know, sort of what you're, what you're all thinking about there in terms of trying to hold on to folks and keep, keep, keep the morale high. Yeah. You know, we, we have some unique challenges <clears throat> not unique, but here in Illinois, um, everybody's dealing with teacher shortage. Um, we were dealing with this before the pandemic and we, um, several superintendents along with some of our other management alliances and, and our unions, um, within the state, we're working on legislation to just help take away some red tape barriers. As far as licensure, it was incredibly difficult for people to come from other states to become teachers in Illinois. So there was just bureaucracy that was in the way, um, first and foremost. But, you know, one thing that popped into my head when we talk about the, the, the profession in general, and as it relates to, Doug, you'd mentioned superintendents who may be thinking about this is time to be done because it, it's incredibly difficult. Um, this year, I was really inspired by 
um, a colleague and friend of mine, another superintendent who was set to retire last year. He's been a long, long-term superintendent. And whenever COVID hit, he, he decided he talked to his board and said he didn't want somebody brand new to come in and have to face this. And so he re-upped for one more year. And I'm like, hey, what, you know, what were you thinking? Why did you do this? And he said, the superintendency has been great to me. Education has been great to me. And I love working with teachers. And he said, Dan, you're going you're gonna to learn over your career that being a superintendent is the greatest job in the world when things are good. But our communities didn't hire us to lead when things are just good. We have to lead in the tough times, too. And that stuck with me this year whenever I've gotten frustrated or um, felt discouraged that, that this is why I'm here is, is for these tough times. Because when things are good, our teachers know what they're doing. Our principals know what they're doing. They can make things happen in our schools. So, so it's us to help pull us forward um, through this type of, of crisis that we're in. In terms of our teachers, though, and, and just for me personally, what I've done in my district, and I'm a new superintendent in, in Rochester. I'm an 11-year superintendent but new here. And I've had the unique distinction of leading two different districts in the pandemic. I was, I was in uh, my previous district in Staunton um, in the spring when this all occurred. And I was actually working um, every other day in both districts for the month of May. Um, wow. It was an experience I'll forever cherish. And I'm glad that I don't have to do it anymore because that was really difficult going back <laughs> between two districts. But as part of my transition, I had transition meetings with several different people, all of our staff in one way or another, um, and stakeholders in our community where I asked four specific questions. And, and that ended up being, um, because of the pandemic, I talked to more people than I probably would have in a traditional transition, but I had 72 meetings with over 200 people where I just listened and talked with them about their, you know, aspirations for our school district. And, and that just springboarded into this year I have done more listening, talking, and collaborating than I probably ever have in my career. And I, I always prided myself on trying to be good at that, but I realized there was a whole nother world and layer. And so there's been an incredible amount of time spent this year just, just talking and listening and, and, and listening with empathy. That's great. That's that's great, Dan. And uh, I'm I'm personally glad you two are, are sticking around and sticking in your districts. We need we need you folks. And so many of our, our IEI soups are also re-upping and signing multi-year contracts now. And it's, uh, we're just honored to know you and work with you. Um, Polly, I wanted to, that this is a good segue because you've, you've written an article in which you um, advocate for teachers to, um, to not dread hallway duty, but rather embrace it and see that as an opportunity to build relationships, right? And Dan just talked about, basically it's the superintendent equivalent of hallway duty. He's, he's been, he's been out talking to folks, you know, that's, um, it, there are a lot. Of, there are a lot of kids right now who are not coming into buildings or coming into buildings twice a day. Um, we've seen there. There are other you know kids who are in school like mine are behind plexiglass all day, um, not allowed to get up from her desk um, really ever. Um, so those present new challenges. I'm curious to hear your thoughts about how we can overcome those. And on the industry side, um, and we see this with our partners. Tons of companies, the companies that are growing right now are the companies that are providing virtual uh, accredited instruction, you know, from people who are just talking to each other on cameras far away from each other. Um, how does that affect our ability to relationship build and where, does, where is this going to leave us when we get back to kids in buildings all day, every day, hopefully soon? So boy, that, that was a stacked a bunch of questions. Let me start Sorry. with, uh, that's okay. <laughs> uh, let me start with the hallway. Now I've written a book called quick wins. Uh, and it's, it's really about, uh, finding something if you're tr 
turning around a failing school or you're struggling or you're trying to initiate some sort of new change, uh, getting the staff to engage in behavior that doesn't require what we call a lot, a lot of response effort, that just isn't that hard and produces meaningful and visible outcomes uh, can help you lead to some more, get through some more challenging things in the future. So the hallway duty was, I consider that a very simple thing to change in the morning, but important thing to change because it's the first thing, you know, kids see in the morning is the teachers, the educators, and they can either be greeted and smile, you know, smiling teachers who are thanking them for walking. And if they run, having them stop and walk back, not just say walk, stop and walk back because the science says that's, that's a punishment. If they're trying to get somewhere quicker and you delay them getting there and it decreased the future occurrence of them running in the, again in the future, uh, they are going to, that's a very effective and meaningful punisher to use uh, with sticking to like a four to one ratio of interactions. It also allows the teachers to establish instructional control in the presence of the teachers, the students are behaving. If the students are running up and down the hallways and they're out of control and there's teachers present, that diminishes their instructional control and that generalizes into the classroom. Not only does it diminish instructional control, but it also sets the tone for the day and it squashes morale, which impacts climate, which is shared perception, and then culture, the way we do things around here and has this ripple effect across the whole day. So I think common areas are extremely important because it's what everybody sees. Arrival to school, transition uh, between classes, cafeteria, and dismissal. These are all very important things established at the beginning of the year uh, when you come back from a break in any school if you want to impact what's going on to, in the classroom because it overflows into there. Now, um, in terms of what's going on in engaging uh, in, in the virtual, this is, this is a challenge, but I think that there are some very simple things that can be generalized into the virtual world that are going on in the classroom. Uh, for example, you know, the, the first line of behavior defense in the classroom, we always talk about this, is good instruction at the student's skill level that's engaging, right? Because engagement is incompatible with off-task behavior. And what is good instruction? Well, you know, having a standard and having a way to assess it, uh, and that standard, as, as uh, Jason was saying earlier, like, why? Why is this important to me? Why do I want to learn this? So it, it ties into some existing knowledge, and the teacher then has a, a good pace and is asking good questions. Questioning is a very simple strategy that's extremely important. We all know about rigor, right? And we're, so we layer those questions on where the more we involve the students in this questioning aspect, the more that we can assess, the more that we can help to ensure that they're shaping and moving in the right direction. There's actually, I'm not sure if you guys have heard of this and it, it's like a behaviors first constructive approach. And it's not, you know, that's not for this podcast, but I, I uh, did a video called The Shame of American Education. It was uh, based off one of uh, B.F. Skinner's articles, and we talk about direct instruction. If you guys have ever heard of Project Follow-Through, it's the largest scale study that's ever been done in education. It was a 10-year study, and they showed clearly not even close the best instructional practices that work, and it's this direct instruction, and part of direct instruction is asking frequent questions, right? Engaging students with frequent questions because it allows for all the assessment, and the proof of this is that in, in, in uh, Seattle, there's a school called Morningside Academy, and they guarantee that students will accelerate their learning times two, times two. There's a program called Comprehensive Application of Behavior Analysis to School in COPPAS, and they apply this approach from the university on down to school leaders, to teachers, and to parents. They're showing ex student acceleration by four to six times, right? So there are things that we can do in the virtual world, like, you know, 
using the breakouts and using, uh, you know, uh, momentary time sampling to catch kids attending and uh, setting up. And we'd have to be able to control for this because if they have access to the computer all day long, that becomes a problem. So we have to involve the parent. But if, if they're doing things on the computer that they want and we can set up access to those things, you know, based on what they're doing in the classroom in the virtual world, we might increase the likelihood that they're going to engage in those in, in those settings. If the teacher can't create an environment that's engaging enough for them. And that takes time. That's a hard thing to do. That's complex. That's understanding the whys of all the students and getting involved in there. So in the meantime, we got to figure out what is meaningful to them, getting some behavior out of them to access that, then hopefully they start to get more involved and want the education, want the grades, want those natural consequences to take over. But it's going to take time, man. I think the software needs to be developed. Like for example, one thing that could happen immediately is that this data needs to be pumped back daily to the teachers, to the school leader, and to the parents, right? What did the, you know, what was the goal for the week? What was the goal for the day? Uh, and what did the student do to achieve that goal, right? How many tasks were they supposed to accomplish? And how many of those did they accomplish? And at what quality, right? When that data is pumped back every day, there's a contingency rather than at the end of the week where the teacher's calling the parents saying, hey, uh, your student didn't show up to class or they only did this much. Now they're in a hole, man. So shortening that, that feedback loop, right. Bringing the future closer, like Brett and I call it right. Uh, and allowing that data just to populate automatically. So it's very little effort for people. I think that's a huge thing that software developers really, and maybe you guys already have this going on, but it would really make a difference in, in the home and what's going on in virtual reality or the, the virtual schooling. I need to jump in there a little bit because I know that there's work going on like that in these two districts. I want to hear from from Dan and Jason on it. But, you know, what I what I have observed is that I think, you know, the onset of, of Internet based ed tech, you know, we're sort of 20 years into that. I think before last March, everybody thought that we were, you know, really far along in this journey of using Internet based server, you know, cloud based ed tech solutions that would f create those data loops. And I think what I've learned from watching all of this is that we're just at the beginning and you just talked about behavioral change and people rethinking how they do things. And I think that one of the, one of the things we've heard our folks talk about through our falls, our series of fall retreats was um, structural change to schedules and times and contracts and how we think about all that time. And I think that's, that's why we're just at the beginning because right now those, there are tons of tools out there that do exactly what you just said, Polly. They're not quite fitting into how people are working today. And I think this last, I hope this last nine, 10 months has helped people start to, to, to rethink and find new ideas um, for how to do this. And I know that you guys have work going on in your districts. To, I'd love to hear your, your, your uh, share out what you're working on. You know, I, I think a couple of things Polly said uh, struck, a, struck a chord and just some thoughts with where we, where we are and where we may be going. Um, I, I agree, we've just scratched the surface on how to learn anytime, anywhere. Um, many school districts have been blessed to have robust one-to-one um, -one programs. And I, as a superintendent, I've always questioned before we went into one-to-one, -one, what's our plan and how are we gonna do it so we don't have a really nice expensive paperweight or we're doing the same thing we've always done, just through a different tool. And I think we were doing well, but then the pandemic has just forced us to go to a whole different level. But before I go on with that, we have to address the equity issue that comes with uh, technology and more so the access to technology. Um, in my previous district, we had one 
um, we didn't have access as far as to the to the technology. Our families didn't have access. We didn't have internet connectivity. There was no way we could have been in a sustained hybrid or remote environment for more than a couple of weeks or we would lose kids completely and just not hear from them. Whereas where I'm at in, in my current district, um, parents have multiple devices at home, but also we have one-to-one -one all the way through kindergarten and we have by and large, very good connectivity. Now we have a few pockets that aren't good, but we've been able to address it. So it's not been a significant barrier, which is an incredible change for me and really enlightened me onto the, the equity issues. So we have to fix that as a whole um, in, in education. And that takes, that takes some uh, political gumption to get that done too um, from our state and national uh, leaders. In terms of what we're seeing and what we're doing, I know this sounds simple, uh, but we, we incorporated a, a um, learning management platform at the beginning of this year, um, which really increased that communication and some of that immediate feedback for both parents, students, and teachers. Um, we were braced. We were braced for the worst whenever we did our fall benchmarks. We moved them back a little bit. And when we did our fall benchmark assessments, we were braced for the, for the worst. I think um, with the pandemic and just not knowing how our kids were learning. And we got an incredible shock and celebration when our students K through six had scored higher on their reading benchmarks than they'd ever scored in our history. That's great. And we thought, okay, you know, our teachers are doing a phenomenal job and they are, but we said, what else? What's changed? Because our, our teachers have always done uh, a great job. So what's changed? And, and we don't have a concrete answer to this, but what we can figure is we've, we've engaged our parents in a more meaningful and, and deeper way um, than we have before. And our parents have followed through on that because we, we've learned that parent engagement has been our, our key, um, you know, uh, I guess, secret weapon as we've tried to keep our students engaged through the pandemic. My concern is getting kids connected from a holistic standpoint. We've been now, several months since November without even being able to get together and kids lift weights after school. They're doing nothing extracurricular, co-curricular, and we're seeing a huge um, dip in just student motivation, morale, social emotional wellness. That's my greatest concern moving into this second semester is how can we get our kids connected? Because when we get them in those situations, whether it's fine arts, extracurriculars, clubs and activities, that's when we see our kids at their most vulnerable and we see them at their most authentic. That space between school and practice right before it starts and you're, you know, you're kind of warming up or you're getting ready for your performance and, and those coaches and teachers and sponsors can interact with them. That's when we learn about our kids. And I don't want to lose that as we continue to move forward and figure out how remote instruction is going to continue to be a part of what we do. The pandemic sort of gives you some levers to pull in terms of adoption that didn't exist before getting folks to adopt tech. However, I think our industry, um, and the software providers, also um, those that, those implementing tech in districts for years maybe have not done what we started off this, this conversation talking about, which is thinking about the why um, and that level of engagement. And I hope, I hope we're gonna see tools really, tool providers really think through that a little better, even though you know, it can be easier now to get folks to engage on a learning management tool because you know, we have this offsite virtual component, but um, Jason, tell us a little about what's going on in Windsor. Yeah, so just thinking about that, you know, that uh, as Polly's talking about uh, both the relationship piece, critically important, uh, 
and, and uh, technology more important than ever, but those are both just means to an end. And we've got to be really clear on means and ends. And the end has to still be student learning. So the, you know, we want to have, we have to build these strong relationships with students so that they learn at high levels. We have to effectively use educational technology so that they learn at high levels. We have to have those uh, co-curricular activities to engage students so that they learn at high levels. So the learning still has to be the end. And I think we have to be careful that we don't say, well, look, we've got, you know, so we utilize Schoology. We are, we have been a one-to-one -one district for a long time, we thought anyway. Uh, all right, let's check that off the box. Well, those are just tools. And so the learning becomes the, the critical piece. So uh, what we've really uh, found, you know, two things uh, that, uh, that I think have, that, that are an opportunity as a result of the pandemic. As I said, we've been uh, engaged in professional learning communities for about 15 years. And, and uh, the first question is the learn what question. Uh, and that's a really hard question. So if our focus is learning, that's the end goal. We have to answer the question, learn what? And I will tell you when I was teaching US history, well, they learned whatever I wanted them to, whatever I decided. Uh, these are a few of my favorite things uh, versus being you know, really strategic and deliberate and systematic about the learn what question. We thought we had done a pretty good job with that. Uh, what the pandemic really taught us is we had to narrow that even further, that, that we were not as clear as we thought we were on the learn what. And then the second question of professional learning community, how will we know if they've learned it? That assessment question, and, and again, to Polly's point, the whole idea of you know, that formative assessing going on all the time in every day and every lesson over and over, uh, that's really hard to do in a virtual environment. So even more important that we get so precise on the learn what, and to be able to say yes or no, did Doug learn it? Yes or no? Did Dan learn it? Yes or no? Did Polly learn it? Yes or no? Uh, that we've got to, to double down on what we know works. So getting really clear about the learn what and getting really clear about the how will we know if they've learned it, what that evidence of learning looks like. And I think you know, for us, it's really not been uh, so much, all right, so how are you using this new learning platform uh, that, by the way, you should have been learning for several years because we've had it, this isn't new. Uh, some, some that uh, had been uh, really good at avoidance for some time, now we're forced into it, but that can't be our focus. That's a, that's a means, that, that's, a, that's a technical aspect that's going to evolve and change uh, even the relationships. What we found is the teachers that were really good at building relationships with students in person are really good at building relationships with students virtually. Those staff members that struggle with building relationships with students in person, they struggle even more doing it virtually. So uh, those though are still means to an end and getting clear on the learn what and uh, how will you know uh, if, if you've uh, learned it uh, is what we've tried to double down on. And I think uh, the opportunity is the people that were able to fake it before aren't able to in this environment. And so it gives us an opportunity to support them in different ways. The other thing is the people that really maybe quietly had a skill set that we didn't know about had an opportunity to really step up and, and to shine. Again, if you have a collaborative culture, uh, everybody, you know, the, the nice thing about uh, 
uh, having a, a faculty is everybody in the room knows something you don't. So there were great opportunities to harness some skill sets that weren't as critical before that were now and to really have some people step into some new leadership roles that, that maybe weren't viewed in that way or valued in that way previously. Can I, can I, I just want to piggyback on what Jason Please. said, because that was very well said, brother. Um, and, you know, in the science we always talk about, there's all, all results require somebody doing more or less or differently, right? So everybody in the schools, everything that's going on should be moving people towards this ultimate outcome of, you know, student achievement. And hopefully people not, not just on test scores, hopefully they're able to actually apply this stuff in real life or in college or wherever, wherever they, they, they move on. But when we talk about behavior to achieve that result, and you have to have a metric for that, right? You need to know, are we moving towards these goals, this ultimate result that we've pinpointed? Are we moving in that direction? But it's not just the behavior of like the student. You know, we have to also look at the behavior of the teacher, the behavior of the guidance counselor. We have to look at the behavior of the assistant principal, the principal right up to the executive director, to the superintendent. All these behaviors have to be aligned in some way that ultimately produce this outcome. So you have to go back and look at if this is what we're determining is going to achieve this outcome, right? This result that we want, are people engaging in that behavior? If they're not engaging in that behavior, why? Is it a skill deficit? They don't know what to do, which is a completely different intervention than if it's a motivational deficit. Or, and if it's a motivational deficit, that might just have to do with like, hey, it's not that they don't want to do it. Maybe they're just not in the habit of doing it. Even though they could tell you what to do, we've got to help sustain that habit. So, you know, it does come back to behavior, but you have to know what behaviors are aligned with those results and then set people on the path to developing that behavior. Paul, you're a, you're a, a behaviorist. Um, you're a believer in relationships. Um, people who run school districts, people who teach kids are are naturally about people and relationships. Uh, IEI, we're about putting people together and helping them connect to develop solutions. We're, we're relationship people. So we're all kind of um, singing from the same hymnal here, right? My question is, do, and this will we'll sort of finish out on this, is, um, is, is relationship building something you can learn or is it an innate skill or, or both? And, and how can you cultivate that um, amidst a, a community and maybe Paula, you can start and we'll go to Jason and Dan. Yeah, uh, absolutely. You can learn relationship building. You know, it's about, uh, it's about pairing. It's about what you say, how you say it, when you say it. Uh, unfortunately, you know, when we want to have relationships, especially in education that, you know, in, especially for school leaders that bring out the best in people and bring out the best in them in terms of coming back to that point, what result do we want? Because we don't want a happy, crappy school, right? We do want people to feel good and we want them to behave or perform well in, in a way that is going to help bring out the best in the students. And it's things like people tend to be poor observers of their behavior, poor observers of the impact of their behavior on their environment, which includes the people in there, and poor observers of the environment and the impact of that on their behavior. And people, again, we have good people that see the immediate outcome of their behavior, but they don't understand the ripple effect of it. That's my whole book, Behavioral Karma, is about that, about leadership and about how what you do is going to have a ripple effect, especially if you're a school leader or in any sort of educational leadership across not only a school, but it could have a ripple effect across education. It's or across somebody's life, generations. It's just extremely powerful what you do, how you do it, uh, and when you do it. And uh, relationship building is just behavior. And simple behavior, it's engaging people, like for, for school leadership, it's engaging your staff in uh, like problem solving. 
in generating solution, right? It's looking at what they're doing well and shaping from there more than catching them being bad. It's using data to reinforce incrementally reinforce growth instead of bringing in to beat people down with it, right? It's bringing the future closer by having these salient metrics that act as like quick feedback loops to them to say, hey, when I do this thing, it's producing this outcome. Let me continue to do it because a lot of times they don't see the outcome that th that their behavior is actually producing. So we got to make it easier for them. You know, like uh, Jason was saying, like, you know, well, we do have to have these formative assessments. And I think that I think that with the uh, uh, and Dan, you made a great point about, man, but none of this matters if we can't get access to to to, to you know, uh, the, the software and the computers and everything. But there is an opportunity for software to produce these formative assessments form of assessments more rapidly right through like just question answering the question if they get it right and they don't they it directs them to you know certain paths or it gives that data back to the teacher so she can reteach that point but we have to make it easy for the teachers we have to stop loading stuff on their back and saying and not taking something else off and and we have to make it easier for the school leaders as well for example these evaluations in my opinion i'm not a fan of performance evaluations because they take too long they suck the life out of, I look at these guys both drop their heads and I know that you guys have to, you have to do it. Right. And if you, I can say it because I'm, I'm not in there, but I don't think school leaders like it. And I don't think the teachers like it. And if it produced valuable outcomes, in other words, the teachers were performing better as, as evidenced by student achievement going in the right direction, that'd be great. I say, get rid of all that bureaucracy. Let's get the the school leader to do what they want to do. And that's engage in instructional leadership and good coaching in there where they don't have to spend so much time with all the documentation. I want in vivo feedback, right? That helps the teacher do something more or less or differently in that moment that then they're going to be able to produce some sort of valued outcome where they can see it. So it's going to make them want to continue doing it even when the school leader's not there. And there's a way to do it, man. There's software that we can have where it's ding, 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 ding. And it's producing that feedback immediately to the teacher on critical behaviors like question asking and the type of questions they're asking and if those questions are aligned with standards some very simple things and the same thing with students we know that when students monitor their own performance this is what they do part of the uh, direct instruction is when they're keeping their own data that data point that's them seeing it go up is a big reinforcer for them to keep them to maintain it and it also allows teachers to group the kids in the level that they are and instead of being stuck in a whole group you know they can move on from this slice to the next one to the next one so there's ways to do this stuff man there's there's ways to do it but education they can't be dumped on they are everybody if yeah. if uh Polly Gaboni ends up state superintendent of education or state commissioner we're getting rid of uh evaluation systems that that would be that would be quite a thing unless you can show me that it's making a difference somewhere all you right know, if you can show I, me I, some evidence and i can't find any <laughs> I, I would add to that you know with evaluation this year we we waived performance evaluations um we just said we're not doing it um and, and there was some of course there was some political pushback on that from our our state agency but ultimately that's what the majority of school districts did and our teachers did everyone survived did, did we yeah. get through the year you know, yeah just reverted to their most recent evaluation and what it did we saw this collective relief at the beginning of the school year and now that we're we're over halfway through or halfway through the school year we've not seen teachers take their jobs less seriously we haven't seen teachers take the year off if you will we haven't seen students not learning i just said we're seeing some of the highest engagement we have ever seen and some of the highest results we've ever seen Great. 
what I've witnessed is we're focusing on what matters. We're spending our time on student learning, not going through the steps and the tedious steps of, of student learning objectives and, and student growth percentage for individual teachers. We're, we're really focusing on what matters and it's made a difference. And it, it is something we need to talk about um, in much more depth as we move forward from this pandemic. Jason, last word to you. Yeah, I think, you know, there's a, there's a matter of, of compliance uh, and, and complacency. So we can comply uh, with our, our uh, performance evaluation systems. We have to, uh, that's law in New York state, but that's a minimum. Uh, and so, you know, one of the, the approaches that we took pre-pandemic, we continue to. So we'll complete the rubric because we have to complete a rubric. Having said that at the same time, we're, we're engaged in strength-based coaching. And so, you know, we have what we call our instructional playbook. There are five areas that, that we focus on. Everybody's clear on those five areas. One of those, by the way, is questioning, effective questioning. And to say, okay, this is something we saw. Uh, now it's a strength. How, how do we leverage that into something even more effective? So, yeah, we'll, we'll comply as a minimum. We'll have your rubric because we're going to, everybody's going to be a score. You know, we're going to rank and spank people because that's our, that that's our model. Rank and spank. I rank love that spank. term. Uh, I'm going to cite you when I say it. That's awesome. Right, that's great. But at the same time we can coach. Uh, and, and I think, you know, and going back to the part about, you know, uh, can you teach uh, relationship building? I think absolutely you can. Uh, but I, I think part of it is we've got to be clear, you know, I think schools, you know, my, my uh, real assumption is uh, that schools are filled with well-intentioned, hardworking people. People don't wake up in the morning and say, you know, I'm going to just, I'm, I'm going to go try to stick it to as many kids as I can. Uh, with, with relationships though, you know, and, and I think Polly made a huge point, the self-awareness piece is so critically important. Uh, so People may not be intentionally uh, sticking it to kids, but their behaviors may be doing it unintentionally. And are they aware enough? Do we have a culture where we can give that feedback, not just from leaders, but from colleagues to, to say that piece? And the other part, I think, you know, and, and uh, I certainly have fallen into this trap, leaders, colleagues alike, not everybody has the same style of teaching and not everybody has the same style of building relationships. And so just because this is an approach that I take doesn't mean that's going to work for you, nor should it. And we've got to, to understand that we need to have a diversity of staff, a diversity of style in a way that we can build relationships with all sorts of kids, all sorts of parents that, that we're not so narrow to say, this is what worked for me. Therefore, that's what you must do. So I think really important uh, that we're clear about that. Can I add one more thing about relationships ahead, uh, before we go? And this is really specifically for, for superintendents um, who are gonna be the primary audience uh, of this podcast. And relationships start with us. And in, in transitioning into um, this district, into Rochester, I had, as I mentioned at the beginning, 200 meetings, and there was one there was one data point from or a 70 some meeting, but 200 people, and there was one data point that every single meeting they said the same thing, and and my question was, what can I do to help move Rochester School District forward? And every single group, every single person said visibility and communication from our superintendent in some way. 
They wanted to see me. They wanted to hear from me. And I, I transitioning in a pandemic, I was really concerned about how am I going to build relationships with people when we're on lockdown? And I want them to know me more than the, the name at the bottom of my email changing. And so to Polly's point about behavior being learned, while I've always felt like I've been able to interact and, and, and have been a good relationship builder, it's again forced me to analyze it and look at it a whole different way and see that there's a whole new world out there, things that I'll continue for the rest of my career that I've learned as a midst of transitioning. And, and that, that trickles down into our district. If we as the leaders and superintendents are prioritizing relationships with our staff, they feel valued, they're going to be more likely to do that with each other and with our students. Gentlemen, this, this has been really great. I wanna thank you all. Polly, I'm, I'm glad to meet you here and not inside of a ring because I'm pretty sure you'd kick the crap out of me. Um, but I'm glad to have you as a fellow fighter for, for kids and for educators. Can you tell folks how, how they can find you on Twitter and elsewhere, Instagram, et cetera? Yeah, uh, just a LinkedIn, Paul, Paul Gavoni. Uh, in, on my uh, Instagram is Dr. Polly Gloves. That's my MMA moniker or Facebook. I use those a lot. Um, can I just leave one little thing Please. here? Uh, oh, and also if I'm doing plugs, hey, check out our latest bestseller, Behavioral Karma, The Five Scientific Laws of Life and Leadership. It's simple application of the science of human behavior for accelerating outcomes in your personal life or as a leader. It's practical science, man. And it's it's really, it's, it's where Brett and I have been very proud to put this out. So I just want to mention mental health. Our students are suffering. Mental health, they're struggling, but it's not just our students. Our teachers are suffering. Our school leaders are suffering. This is a major issue. This is an epidemic. Uh, and and we can't we can't fall on the back of the guidance counselors. It can't fall back on school psychologists. There's already a shortage. We have to equip students and teachers and school leaders with coping mechanisms. And so there's a process. There's a there's a great uh, and I cover in chapter seven in my book. It's called acceptance commitment training or acceptance commitment therapy. Think about it as a science of mindfulness. I use it with my fighters. I have another book on MMA science where I teach them because you have to deal with a lot of fear and anxiety fighting. So it, it puts simple tools in their hands to understand what their values are, right? Their why, understand what shows up inside of them, right? This fear, anxiety, this anger and all this stuff, how they behave when that stuff shows up, right? Is that behavior moving them closer to their why or their values or away? And if it's not, what behaviors can they engage in, right? What, what they can com commit to instead that are going to move them in that direction. That brings back that self-awareness. So this is critical. And there's something called the matrix that makes it simple. And an elementary child can do it for themselves. The teacher can facilitate it, but the teacher needs to be able to facilitate it for themselves. It's an epidemic. And this is a scalable solution to making a difference in education. And we need it. And I know that one thing is like what gets measured gets moved. And unfortunately, we're not measuring this stuff enough, right? It's not important because it's not tied into, you know, what the state's looking at. But we really, if we were going to produce the outcomes, the result that we want, we've got to consider mental health. This is a, this is an epidemic. It's major. So thanks for letting me like plug that, Doug. Thank you, Polly. Jason, how, how can people find you? Twitter? Yep. Twitter uh, uh, at WBK Andrews. Uh, and uh, yeah, that's it pretty much. I'm on LinkedIn and, and those, I guess. Uh, yeah, but right. uh, Twitter is where I, where I spend more time than I should. Same. Dan? You can find me on Twitter. That's where I spend most of my time as well. It's simple. Dan underscore Cox. Um, and then also I, I have an account on Instagram for our, our 
as a superintendent of our district at Dan W. Cox or Rocket Soup 3A. Great. Thank you guys. We appreciate all the work you're doing. Polly, great, great to have you here and uh, look forward to continued discussions. Thanks for all your work. Thank you guys. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. You guys take care. All right. Cheers. All right. That was great. I have to tell you, just a fun conversation with two great superintendents, just, just, you know, knee deep in the weeds of the work and, uh, and really enjoyed meeting Paul. It was the first time I'd ever met him and I hope he'll, I hope we'll continue to work with him and maybe bring him back sometime. Maybe when we can finally get together, you know, uh, with large groups of people, instead of these, these hybrid gatherings we're doing where we have to keep numbers down, it'd be great to have him in the mix at one of our events. So there's episode nine in the books. I think you all have seen that we've gotten back on track with weekly episodes, and that's largely because um, Sarah Kroll here at IEI is keeping the trains running on time and uh, booking these episodes. So next week, we've got a preview of IEI's Las Vegas Leadership Retreat with the three, um, we won't call them retired, we'll, we'll call them uh, former and maybe future superintendents, at least in, in one case, uh, who are helping us um, lead the workshops out in Las Vegas. They will be on with me, and that's Tracy Davis, Dallas Dance, and Clayton Wilcox. So look forward to that. Thanks for listening. Please do subscribe, and you know you can find us at IEI underscore K12 on Twitter, www.instituteforedinnovation.com on the web. Thanks. Thanks.